and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a lack of a viable peace plan emerging from the talks between Xi Jinping and Putin, since there was no communication between Xi and Zelensky, which indicates Putin was able to end up not being constrained from pursuing his war against Ukraine, at the same time appearing to be open to peace talks. Joining us to discuss whether contacts between China and Ukraine in pursuit of a peace deal will continue is Mark Hanna, a senior fellow at the non-profit Eurasia Group Foundation and the creator and host of its None of the Above podcast, which recently featured a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, about how the war in Ukraine ends. Mark is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project. A veteran of the Kerry and Obama presidential campaigns, he teaches at New York University and is the author of The Best Worst President, What the Right Gets Wrong About Barack Obama. And we'll discuss his article at Politico, Biden Should Listen to Zelensky on China. Then, with the Fed raising interest rates today for the ninth time in a row by a quarter of a percentage point to just under 5%, we will speak with Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He is the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and he writes the popular economics blog Beat the Press. We will discuss the Fed's continuing campaign against inflation despite the collapse of two banks due to rising interest rates and his article at dcreport.org, Regulators Never Looked at Silicon Valley Bank's Key Vulnerability. Then finally we will discuss the roots of the radical right that has now captured the Republican Party and speak with Matthew Dalek, an historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. The author of The Right Moment and Defenseless Under the Night, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Politico, and among others. His latest book, Just Out, is Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Mark Hanna, a senior fellow at the nonprofit Eurasia Group Foundation and the creator and host of its None of the Above podcast, which recently featured a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, about how to end the war in Ukraine. Mark is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations 
and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project, a veteran of the Kerry and Obama presidential campaigns. He teaches at New York University and is the author of The Best Worst President, What the Right Gets Wrong About Barack Obama. And he has an article at Politico, Biden Should Listen to Zelensky on China. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Hanna. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. And there was some expectation that Xi Jinping would do a video conference with uh, Zelensky while he was in Moscow meeting with Putin. As far as I know, it didn't happen, right? As far as I know as well, although that doesn't rule out the possibility of it happening, there's uh, been some interest expressed by Zelensky to... uh, uh, from on both on both sides to have uh, to have that done, so they could be haggling over the details or the logistics. And we know that Zelensky's foreign minister has been having conversations with his Chinese counterpart. So I guess what happened then was that Putin essentially got what he wanted, which enables him to continue fighting while saying he's open to peace talks. And on the other side. Xi Jinping seems to have gotten a lot more than he wanted in terms of economics, etc. And some people have suggested that Putin has had to mortgage the Kremlin to Beijing. What do you think? Well, they certainly do have, uh, China has a lot of economic leverage over Russia. It it accounts for about 30% of of Russia's trade, uh, whereas Russia only accounts for about 3% of China's trade. So it doesn't uh, necessarily matter that much to ch- the Chinese economy. And yet the war, I think, is uh, not the continuation of the war is not necessarily in China's interests. Right. There's a risk of nuclear escalation. There's a it's not uh, hyperventilating or hyperbolic to talk about the possibility of a, of a third world war. Um, so I think that China wants very much for that not to happen while it is ascending geopolitically. Uh, and just off the win, the ge- uh, the diplomatic win of this sort of res- restoration of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia, China has a real opportunity here to position itself as a peacemaker uh, while in the, you know, it, it portrays the United States and the West as warmongers. Uh, so I do think there is a sincere desire by China uh, to see this war end, I don't think there were any major breakthroughs uh, in the conver- out of the past two days, at least from what I'm seeing. Uh, and it's unclear how much diplomatic cover, which is the phrase that Secretary Blinken used, China has in fact given Russia to continue to prosecute this war. I think to some extent it remains to be seen whether Russia continues to be isolated uh, or not. But it does seem that Putin at least got what he wanted in terms of being able to essentially continue the war at the same time saying that he's open to peace talks. Yeah, he, he, got, he, he did. He get, held the line, in other words. Right. And, and I think what's more important for him is he got President Xi to say something like, your people will continue to support you, uh, which is essentially uh, tr- trying to put the kibosh on any political dissent at home. And by having a, a, the head of a state, head of state of a, a major power like China, he's building uh, or trying to cement the legitimacy, the popular legitimacy uh, that he does have at, at home. Um, that's, I think, what's more in his interests. Uh, you know, there's not he's he's running both sides are have a finite amount of ammunition, have a finite amount 
of uh, people and and young men that are that are going to go fight. Um, so it's true that there was there was a uh, Putin can continue to fight, and he's shown himself not to be as isolated as the West would like him to be. Uh, that you know China, as well as a third of Asian countries, did not vote to condemn the Russian invasion as illegal. More than half of African countries did not vote to condemn the Russian invasion as illegal. I think Putin, by going to Mariupol, by by hosting this state uh, visit by Xi Jinping, uh, is is trying to portray himself as an uh, antithesis of the West, but is trying to yeah gain the geopolitical sort of approval he needs to continue to prosecute this war. So, Mark Henney, you mentioned the peace deal that China brokered, or not a peace deal, but the resumption of uh, of diplomatic ties between bitter enemies, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Is it possible, when you look at that deal, we could end up with Russia, Iran, and Saudi Arabia in some kind of compact already? Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, are tied by the OPEC Plus pact. But the idea that these three really big oil producers could be in a situation, on the one hand, to make favorable deals with China, but on the other hand, to gouge the West and the United States. It's an interesting thing to contemplate. I I don't see, you know, it's one thing for Saudi Arabia and, and, and Iran to restore diplomatic ties and set up embassies in each other's uh, country. It's another thing altogether for them to start uh, sh- sort of uh, de- developing economic collusion and, and, and uh, you know, boycotting or, or kind of creating a stranglehold o- over the oil market. Um, I don't know that it's, you know, I think Russia desperately wants to sell its natural gas, its, its energy to, to the West. It's found an export market in countries like India, uh, but it's unclear how long India's appetite for for that will continue. Um, I, I'll, I'll confess to, to not be a sort of energy markets expert, so I, I can't speculate too much. But I do know that the United States gets a lot of its oil from Canada. It gets a lot of its oil from countries that don't necessarily, you know, I, I think it would be suicidal for countries that do produce oil that are feeling a bit of desperation because they see a transition happening to green energy and renewable energy sources. Uh, to accelerate that uh, transition by trying to hold their oil hostage from the most energy intensive and, and energy using countries in Europe and in, in the United States in particular. So, Mark Hanna, let's talk about your podcast with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in which he says that neither Russia or Ukraine are likely to achieve their complete political objectives through military means. Instead, he believes that the war will probably end when somewhere, somehow, someone's going to figure out how to get to a negotiating table. And then when you ask him if the United States should take any peace plan seriously, regardless of whether it comes from Italy, Turkey, or even China, Milley didn't disagree. So... This is the man that advises Biden on military matters, right? Sure. He's the primary military advisor to the president, the secretary of defense, and the National Security Council. So what do you think's going on inside the White House then? Because they were pretty clear in dismissing the possibility that she and Putin would come up with a peace plan that 
would fly in any way. And the fact that it was hatched in Moscow and the, she did not talk to Zelensky makes it dead on arrival. But as you've pointed out earlier, that doesn't mean that it could be revived or something's happening behind the scenes. Sure. And I think, look, a, a big part of the Chinese plan that is not appealing to the West is that it, it calls for an immediate ceasefire. So that would uh, freeze Russian uh, territorial gains in place while uh, the two parties negotiate on uh, an outcome of this war that's uh, other than uh, a complete military victory, which, as Mark Milley says, that's not a political appraisal. He's a he's a soldier. And that's a military analysis that this will not end with, you know, uh, very, very unlikely to end with a kind of unconditional surrender by one party or, or the other. We're looking at trench warfare here where gains are painful and incremental. So I think, look, what I, my, my read of it is, you know, this might oversimplify things, but the, the military men, uh, and they are men, uh, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, as well as Mark Milley, tend to be the ones that are advocating most forcefully for a diplomatic resolution to encourage our, our Ukrainian partners and benefactors to, to sort of accelerate the peace talks and diplomacy that might bring an end to this war, while people paradoxically who have a role, who are, who are professional diplomats that might be working in the Secretary of State and elsewhere are uh, a bit more hawkish and they want to see, you know, peace through strength or they see, you know, we need to get Russia on its heels in order to even have a favorable sort of situation where, where Ukraine can uh, negotiate from a position of strength. So they seem to be the ones that are pushing for these tanks and pushing for more weapons sales. Um, it's a bit of a backward scenario uh, where the military folks who are acutely aware of the costs of conflict uh, are advocating for diplomacy and diplomats are arguing for war. Well, interesting enough, a really key diplomat is the head of the CIA, and he has a pretty good relationship with Putin, certainly better than anybody else in the U.S. government and a very good relationship with Zelensky. So do you think that Burns is doing anything behind the scenes? I certainly hope so, and I don't have any visibility onto that. And I, I exempt Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, from the the diplomat category. I'm, I'm thinking more State Department. I'm, he's The CIA and the inter, in, intelligence community kind of occupies this nebulous space uh, be, between sort of military and diplomacy, in, in my mind anyway. Um, I do think, you know, he has not had a very vocal role as is typical of a CIA director. But from what I can read of his uh, public statements, it does seem like he's got an open channel to his Russian counterpart, that there is a, uh, a desire to especially mitigate any kind of escalation that what might can result in nuclear use, uh, keep a, a kind of a line of communication. I mean, he wrote a book called The Back Channel, right? So he's he's a understands the importance of being able to communicate with your adversaries when you're working at very cross purposes and your your interests are diametrically opposed. So I, I take some comfort in his skill and his ability and the things he, he seems to be doing for sure. That, that what, what this all comes down to is a sense of what is America's agency here, right? We have said, and, and Secretary Blinken has said, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, right? We need to defer to the Ukrainians because they're courageously uh, and at great cost to their country fighting this war with Russia. Uh, and and I respect that position. But when it comes time for Ukraine to consider 
negotiate as sort of peace plans that might be getting floated by Italy, as happened, I think, over the summer and then and then now more recently by China. If, if you're really going to defer to Ukraine's agency and the Ukrainian position, you shouldn't come out and start disparaging a peace plan that was made by even an adversarial country, even China, when the Ukrainians are suggesting that they could be open to it. And and believe me, they're going to need China or they're going to want China's help when it comes to rebuilding uh, the costs of uh, reconstruction, of, of building infrastructure back might be just more than the West is able or willing to bear. Uh, so there's an interest that Zelensky has in engaging with, with China here uh, to the extent that China can portray itself as a, a neutral broker. As I said before, they didn't they didn't vote uh, at the UN that Russia's invasion was illegal, so their their neutrality might be suspect. That said, there's a practical sort of matter of of working with great powers. Zelensky has said the more countries, especially big influential countries, that are thinking about peace and how to get there, the the sooner it will happen. So, just in the last couple of minutes, then. Earlier, Mark Hanna, you mentioned pain, and of course, I guess in a way, that's the key issue here. Russia appears to be able to accept more pain than Ukraine, which has a considerably smaller population and therefore a smaller pool of manpower, and we don't know how many casualties Ukraine is suffering, but it has to be considerable. We know the Russians are suffering enormous casualties. So that's a key, is it not? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's... I don't know if any of your listeners have watched All Quiet on the Western Front or, or read the book, um, but the kind of warfare we're looking at is is trench warfare. It's a war of attrition uh, where people are, you know, the, when when we first announced that we were selling tanks, I, I, I had to look at the war a little bit more closely. I thought that was sort of a, a silly thing to send because nobody does trench warfare. This looks a lot like World War One. This looks a lot like uh, all quiet on the Western Front, where people are going up a few yards, getting mowed down, c- coming back a few yards. It's it's a bloody, bloody conflict. And, and Putin has shown very little regard for the value of human life, lives, not just the civilians that are getting killed in Ukraine and has been well covered in the, in the American media, but also Russian lives, right? And that's, I think, again, why Xi's statement about your people continuing to support you was so problematic, but also powerful and, and beneficial to Putin. Um, I think this is this is a bloody war of attrition. It, it is difficult to see how Ukraine, even with all the sophisticated weaponry it's getting from the West, can kick every, as General Milley told me, kick every Russian out of every inch of Ukrainian territory, which is their stated objective. It's hard to imagine how that happens militarily. So just in closing then, Mark Hanna, Given that it's pretty clear from this summit that Russia is the junior partner and will continue to be so and even become more subordinate, so that would that mean then that in the future China could pressure Russia to loosen its ties with India, also perhaps even deploy Chinese military forces in Central Asia, which Russia, of course, feels that that's their sphere of influence? Yeah, I think... You know, the, the the term junior partner is tricky because it suggests that they're working on the same on the same level, that like somehow this is a proxy war between the United States and China, where Ukraine is America's proxy and Russia is China's proxy. Um, I don't think it's 
I don't think the interests of China and Russia are totally aligned here, but I do think given China's economic might, its, its geopolitical heft, uh, it does have a lot more ability to maneuver than Russia does. And, and you know, Russia sort of operates, you know, if, if it were to lose China's patronage, right, China has not yet sold them lethal weapons that we know about, but they are sending crucial technologies and other types of things to Russia. If China was to decide, you know what, our relationship with Western Europe and our trading partners there, our relationship with the United States is too important. Or if some influential country in you know, South Korea or India decided we're going to, this, this is, this has gone on too long. We're going to start putting pressure on Russia to end its war. We're going to stop buying Russian energy. If, if China started to see Russia actually be isolated, I said it hasn't been isolated, but it's, um, it could go in that direction. I don't, I can't imagine a world where China, you know, values uh, being, throwing its lot in with, with Russia. It doesn't benefit China to be sort of tied to a pariah if it's going to be a pariah itself. It has a, too much to lose. And I think it has, uh, you know, as much as it's enjoying this kind of flagrant bucking of the Western-led international order, I, I don't think that it stands to benefit too much from, you know, Russia picking up 30% or 20% instead of 13% of Ukraine. So I think there, there will be political pressure just as uh, the West's patience with Ukraine is not finite. I think China's patience with Russia will not be finite. Again, this is not a proxy war, but these are uh, the kind of lifelines that each country, uh, each of the combatants has. Well, Mark Hanner, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It was a real pleasure. Happy to join any time. Well, we'll do it again. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Hanna, who's a senior fellow at the nonprofit Eurasia Group Foundation and the creator and host of its None of the Above podcast, which recently featured a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, about how the war in Ukraine ends. Mark is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project. He's a veteran of the Kerry and Obama presidential campaigns, and he teaches at New York University, and he's the author of The Best Worst President, What the Right Gets Wrong About Barack Obama, and he has an article at Politico, Biden Should Listen to Zelensky on China. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking to the Fed's raising of interest rates today for the ninth time in a row by a quarter of a percentage point to just under 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dean Baker, a senior economist and co founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press. And he has an article at dcreport.org, Regulators Never Looked at Silicon Valley Bank's Key Vulnerability. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dean Baker. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Dean. And the Fed 
raised interest rates for the ninth time in a row today by a quarter of a point to just under 5%. And this is a little puzzling given that we've just had a collapse of three banks here in the United States as a result of rising interest rates. So who's the Fed listening to? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it strikes me they've made a, they have a very single minded approach that they got to get the inflation rate down to two percent, and I'm sure part of that is because they did let inflation pick up. They said it was going to be transitory, and obviously that was wrong, or at least it's lasted longer as transitory than I think most people would have expected. And anyhow, since then they've been on this rate hiking spree, and uh, as I say I think it's been rather single minded because they've been ignoring the risk to the economy, most directly, obviously, to employment, but the financial risk, which were well understood. I mean, I didn't, you know, I don't think anyone anticipated that this particular bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, would be the one to go, Signature Bank the second. The, the exact course of a financial crisis you can never really anticipate, but the fact that higher rates were create stress in, in the financial system, that was pretty predictable. So, uh, I think there's a very good case here just out of caution that the Fed would hold off in further rate hikes, but apparently uh, Powell and the rest of the Fed felt otherwise. But the continued raising of prices, consumer prices, as far as I can tell, that's caused by sort of corporate price gouging. And the Fed's apparently very concerned about airline tickets and streaming TV subscriptions getting out of hand. But isn't the real problem here that there is no restraint on corporations? If you go to the supermarket, prices are just arbitrarily raised. Who's doing that and what constraint is there on uh, big corporations? We do have a problem with excessive concentration in many areas, but that didn't just happen. So the question is, is there any reason to think that we're going to see continually increasing profit margins? And frankly, I don't think so. And I don't think we are seeing that. But I think the Fed has been really sloppy in its thinking. I don't know what their actual thinking is, what they say. Um, they're, they've been focused, uh, Powell, this is what I'm focusing on here, but other members of the Fed say largely the same thing. They've been saying that they're focused on services, that uh, service, uh, the price of services has been rising rapidly. There's two points I'd make in that. Some of them, actually, it's not true. Healthcare services actually have been rising at a very moderate pace. Um, so it's simply not true that all services, and healthcare is not a small one, so I'm not just picking a small item. It's a very large chunk of uh, our price indices. But the, the other point is that the services, at least many of them, have goods cost highly embedded, and just to take the most obvious one, transportation services like car repairs. Well, that depends on car parts, and car part prices have risen a lot, which was because of shortages created in the pandemic. And my expectation, this could be wrong, my expectation is that those prices will stop rising so much as the backlog of demand gets met. And so, so I think that they're looking at something that really isn't there. And I focused on wage growth and uh, the rate of wage growth currently is 3.6%. We saw that in 218, 219 when inflation was below the Fed's target. So there's no, to my view, they should be taking credit saying we accomplished what we wanted. Inflation will be coming back to where we, we had targeted to the 2% rate, maybe not exactly 2%, but in that ballpark. But they don't seem interested in taking credit. They just want to keep raising rates. 
And it's already come down from 9 to 6%, right? Yeah, well, it's come down even more in the sense we tend to it tends to get reported in the media year over year. So we're looking at the rate from February 2022 to February 2023. I and many other economists, we, we try to look at what's been going on recently, because obviously we can't change what happened in February 222. We could look to change what happens in March, April and May. So you look at the more recent numbers and there we're looking at inflation rates around four or four and a half percent. So still higher higher than the Fed's target, probably higher than would be desirable, but considerably lower than what it had been. So it's come down a lot. And one point I should add, should add in here that, you know, people will follow this closely, and certainly Powell's well aware of this, really big factor in inflation is rent. And rents rose a lot in 2021, 2022. We know rents in our price indices will come down because there's private indexes of marketed units. The, the, idea of a market unit. If I leave my my apartment and someone else comes in and rents it, that's market. It goes on the market and they see what the rents are. So there's private indices where they look at those prices. And the rate of inflation in market units has just plummeted. It's been double digit in some of these indices. Now it's close to one or two percent. Some even show deflation. That's going to show up in our price indices, the consumer price index and the the uh, uh, personal consumption expenditure deflator that the Fed focuses on, that's going to show up in the next three, four, five months. So we know rents are, rental inflation is coming down a lot, and that's going to have a very big impact on the overall inflation rate. So going back to the recent bank failures, particularly the Silicon Valley Bank, which you wrote about in your article at dcreport.org, regulators never looked at Silicon Valley Bank's key vulnerability. What I find extraordinary about that is that the Silicon Valley Bank had over $10 billion in treasuries, and which is a secure investment. But then when interest rates went up, suddenly the value of their holdings went down, and they decided to dump the entire portfolio, and they took a $2 billion loss, and that was noticed, and that began the run on the bank. Guess who advised them to dump their entire portfolio of treasuries? Yeah, that was Goldman Sachs doing. Um, but but guess know, how much? Guess how much Silicon Valley paid Goldman Sachs for that appallingly bad advice? I, I don't have the figure. Hundred million dollars. Oh my God! But, I don't think. I mean, what the hell is you. going on here? Well, I, I, I will be a little generous to Goldman Sachs and, and just say Silicon Valley Bank had to raise money because um, they were getting there already was a run. There were already people saying, hey, give me, you know, it's a classic Jimmy Stewart thing. Everyone's down to the bank and says, hey, I want my money. And they had to give it to them. So I'm not sure they had better options. I'll just say that I'm not saying Goldman Sachs made the right call. I'm just saying Silicon Valley Bank was already in a different difficult situation. So Without looking at their books, I can't say, but I, I, I'm just saying they may not have had a better option. So what then do you make of what Senator Elizabeth Warren has joined with, of all people, Senator Rick Scott of the Republican of Florida, proposing that the Fed's internal inspector general should be replaced by an outside inspector general appointed by the president? Yeah, I, th I think that's really, I mean, we need an outside investigation. I don't I don't know, not, not to knock it, I just don't know that's the best route. But I mean, we do need some outsider. The Fed, I mean, it's fine if the Fed wants to do its own investigation, they should. 
but there should be an independent investigator to say, you know, here's, you know, who, who doesn't have to worry about answering to, to Jerome Powell or anyone at the Fed. That's what I think we all should want. So, again, I think it's a reasonable proposal. I don't know enough about the details of inspector generals, whether that's the simplest, best way. But absolutely, we need an outside investigation. So, Dean Baker, let's talk a little more about your article at dcreport.org. Regulators never looked at Silicon Valley Bank's key vulnerabilities. Um, we talked about the interest rate rise that forced them to sell their portfolio of T-bills. But you're pointing out that it's insane to have it, have banks have stress tests without paying any attention to interest rates. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I was, one of the big changes that was made in 218, there was a bill that the Republican Congress, had Democrats supporting it too, but Republican Congress, of course, at that time, pushed through that that weakened the Dodd-Frank regulations. And very specifically, Dodd-Frank required every institution that had more than $50 billion in assets to be subject to regular stress test and heightened scrutiny. 218 bill said, no, $250 billion is the floor for that. So Silicon Valley Bank fell in between that $50 billion and $250 billion. So what that meant was prior to 218, it would have had to be subject to regular stress tests, which I thought surely they would have, had they subjected to a stress test, surely they would have seen its problems. Now, they didn't necessarily need a stress test to see its problems, but, but surely if they'd done a stress test. And the idea of a stress test is you assume bad scenarios about the future. Not absurd. I mean, we're not going to ask what happens if there's a Martian invasion. They, you know, okay, it goes under. But bad things that are plausible but bad. And what I assumed is they would include in that list of things a jump in interest rates, like the four or five percentage points, like what we've actually seen. Maybe they'd have six. I don't know. But, you know, the point is assume something bad, not your baseline scenario, but something bad. Well, apparently they did not include interest rates in their trust stress test. I just assumed they would because it's kind of an obvious bad scenario. If you go back to 2020, 2021, when the interest rate on long term treasuries is one percent, which people don't follow this, that's extremely low. We had that in the Great Depression and no time since. So I assumed they would have in their stress test the scenario where the interest rates on treasuries go to 4% or something like that. But apparently they didn't include that. And I looked up on the Fed because they, they have their stress test on their website. They looked to me the same stress test that they used back in the financial crisis in 2009. So they had things like a big plunge in house prices, a rise in the unemployment rate to 10% or whatever the number was, which are fine to include, but those were not things that you really had to worry about, or at least not in the near future, whereas you did have to worry about a big jump in interest rates. So I, I, I just found it amazing that they wouldn't have included a big jump in interest rates as part of their stress test, but for whatever reason, it wasn't in there. So the Fed statement today said that recent developments are likely to result in tighter credit conditions for households and businesses and to weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. The extent of these effects is uncertain. Well, they're not that uncertain, are they? I mean, isn't that well, what people are the, worried about? The direction about? is not uncertain. We know that there'll be less lending because of this, but is that going to be a lot less? I mean, we're going to see lending cut back 10%, 20%. I mean, I don't, I don't think so, frankly. I mean, I don't think it'll be a huge effect, but there definitely will be some effects. So, that's uh, that's what uh, Powell was saying when we don't really know because it's 
this is to some extent new terrain and how much will banks react by reducing lending? It really is hard to say. So it's the same problem you know, always that banks will have that on the one hand, there's a trade-off. They want to make money and you make money by making loans. On the other hand, they recognize that they can get carried away and they could end up like Silicon Valley Bank or they actually could have the regulators crack down on them and say, no, you're going to have to you're going to have to make fewer loans. You're going to have to raise more capital by selling shares, whatever things they don't want to do. So so the question is, how far do they go the route of being more cautious and making fewer loans because of the situation we're in? Well, but a lot of economists are concerned that uh, there's a risk of tipping the economy into recession. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely have that risk. And when you raise rates as quickly, even ignoring Silicon Valley Bank, you know, say that never happened, we would still be facing because there's no doubt. I mean, raising he raised rates a lot, raised them quickly. Um, it was really extraordinary. I think Volcker in, in uh, 1980 was the last time we had anything remotely comparable in terms of uh, the the pace at which rates were increased. Usually the Fed, when it raised rates, does it in quarter point movements. That allows it to raise the rate at one meeting. Their meetings are six weeks apart, so then they can look around, see what things look like, decide is it worth doing another quarter point the next meeting. That's the most common stance of the Fed. Here we had, I think it was four consecutive three-quarter point rate hikes, which is really, really fast. So that does pose risk to the economy. It's held up pretty well. I mean, I got to say, the latest job numbers, they look pretty good. Um, so in most respects, it looks pretty good. But you do have to worry. It's going to stop looking good and turn around pretty quickly. I, I mean, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I'm not predicting it will happen. But that's certainly a very real risk. Well, apparently the Fed expects unemployment rate to rise to 4.5% from 3.6% in February. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a bad story. It's not a horrible story in the sense it could be much worse, but that's a lot of people working today that aren't going to have jobs uh, next year. So, um, I, I, again, it could be much, much worse, but that's that, that's not a good story. A lot of people, and as we know, when the unemployment rate rises, it's disproportionately those at the bottom. We're going to see black people lose their jobs, Hispanic people, people with less education, people with criminal records. So it's not as though that's distributed equally and we're going to see, okay, one percentage point increase in unemployment. So one percentage point fewer people working as doctors and lawyers. No, no, this is this is people who are the most disadvantaged of the labor market who are going to be taking the hit. But just in closing, Dean Baker, the Fed expects the economy to grow 0.4 percent this year. That's pretty anemic. Well, it's very anemic, especially since we got off to a pretty strong start. I mean, we already have two months where we're growing pretty rapidly. Probably the, the first quarter, the estimates are close to 3% for growth. I mean, we don't have the March data yet. We're still in March. But if let, let's just say that we end up growing 3%. Again, I don't have the crystal ball here. But let's say we grow 3% at the first quarter. That means we're shrinking the rest of the year. So that's not that's not a pretty picture. I mean, my hope is that they're overly pessimistic, but you know, they I mean, I take their projection seriously. They could well be wrong, but they didn't just pull them out of their rear. So, um, it's not a good picture. Well, Dean Baker, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Dean Baker, who's a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press. And he has an article at dcreport.org, Regulators Never Looked at Silicon Valley's Bank's Key Vulnerability. 
We're going to take a B-Station break back discussing the roots of the radical right that has now captured the Republican Party. When money you're needing and mouths you are feeding, I'm Johnny Banker, Johnny Banker am I. I'll plaster your home with a furniture loan, swinging I'm a Jolly Banker, Jolly Banker am I. If you show me you need it, I'll let you have credit. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters. This is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matthew Dalek, an historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, the author of The Right Movement and Defenseless Under the Night. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Politico, among others. And his latest book, Just Out, is Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Dalek. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I take it the significance of your new book is that the radical right has now captured the Republican Party and it has its roots in the John Burt Society. Is that a, is that a brief uh, description? Yeah, that's a, a, a very good uh, description. Um, obviously, uh, there were other far-right movements before the Birch Society and, and after. Um, but I argue in the book that MAGA um, and that, that the ideas and tactics that, that Trump and the Tea Party before him represented, that those ideas and tactics uh, reflect the imprint of the John Birch Society, the um, anti-interventionist, isolationist uh, uh, mindset or, or positions, um, a more explicit kind of nativism and racism, the conspiracy theories, most obviously. And finally, uh, a more apocalyptic, uh, violent mode of politics. And, and so part of it is tracing the roots to, to the Birchers, looking at the Birchers, looking at, at what they believed, what they did, uh, how they were contained, and then also looking at how uh, ideological successors to the movement picked up on their ideas over the decades. So just to describe the Birches, the John Birch Society was founded in 1958 at a secret meeting in Indianapolis led by Robert Welsh, a candy manufacturer. And its name came from a Christian missionary and intelligence officer killed in 1945 by the communist Chinese. So the, its roots, in effect, are in Christianity and anti-communism, are they not? Yeah, that's right. And uh, Robert Welch uh, wrote a book about uh, John Birch. And uh, the name was appropriate in that Birch was seen as a martyr, um, not simply the first victim of, of what they, Birchers, saw as World War III, but also a victim of an internal uh, communist conspiracy, essentially, to cover up his death uh, uh, in the State Department, other government agencies. And, um, and they founded this movement. It was a, a, a dozen uh, men, a, a white, rich, most of them industrialists, uh, mostly Christian. Uh, and they wanted to create a group 
that was to educate uh, uh, citizens, educate Americans about the internal threat to the country from communism. And among that group, I take it, was the father of the Koch brothers, Fred Koch. Yes. Uh, so Welch was the, the founder, um, and there were other very prominent people, but uh, really the, I would say the, the most prominent uh, is Fred Koch. And uh, he was very supportive of the Birch Society, uh, certainly in the early years. And one of his sons actually uh, also became a Bircher. But um, there are letters from, from Fred Koch in which uh, he's trying to, he was trying to convince uh, other CEOs to, to become uh, leaders of the movement. He was trying to basically proselytize on behalf of the movement. And I think he appreciated that, that the Birch Society gave Americans um, a grassroots, action-oriented uh, group to really to fight communists in their communities. And that it allowed, as one Bircher said, right, it, the, the society was, quote, the answer to every anti-communist prayer. And, and Koch took that, that idea to heart and believed that you know, here's a movement that will actually do something instead of just talking about uh, the, the communist inroads in our country. But if you combine the activities of the Birch Society and the House of Un-American Activities, it did have a profound political effect in the, in the 50s and 60s in basically eviscerating the left wing of the Democratic Party. And then the rest of the, the Democrats, the centrist and the right of the Democratic Party, were clambering over themselves not to be soft on communism. Yeah, I and mean, that's a really interesting uh, question. I, I guess, you know, the issue is how, how much power, you know, uh, do we attribute to uh, HUAC, the House on Americans Activities Committee, to McCarthyism as well, uh, and, and then to the Burt Society? Um, by, by the time that the Birchers really became a force in the early 1960s, uh, liberals, including some on the left, for example, in the Americans for Democratic Action uh, and, and you know, magazines like The Nation, which was you know, liberal as well, but John F. Kennedy, um, pushed back very, very hard on the Birch Society. And there was a, a, a concerted effort to uh, discredit and, and expose the society as a threat to democracy from within for a whole variety of reasons. So, you know, first of all, I would say the Birchers in some ways energized many liberals. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say HUAC and McCarthyism in some ways were more effective in the, in the early 50s at, and, and even before that in the late 40s, uh, HUAC, um, at, at having a chilling effect on the left and tarring uh, uh, people, individuals especially, who may have been associated with a very left-wing or even communist movement at one point um, to you know, name names or disclose their, their affiliations. Um, and, but you know, by, the, by the time of the 60s rolled around, um, I, I think it was less you know, the Students for a Democratic Society, the anti-war movement, you know, the left was, was 
more, um, you know, much more uh, prominent, I think, in the 60s. Right. But equating anybody who's progressive on domestic issues with aiding and abetting a foreign enemy nevertheless was effective. And what I find puzzling, Matthew, is the the radical right now has captured the Republican Party, at least it seems that way, with the Freedom Caucus being the tail that wags the dog of the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And there, as opposed to the John Birches, who were violently anti-communist and therefore anti-Soviet, how do you explain the Freedom Caucus and Tucker Carlson and company shilling for Putin? Uh, for the life of me, I don't mm -hmm. understand that. Yeah, well, um, that's that's a, a pretty tangled uh, uh, story. Um, well, so the Birchers, first of all, yes, they were anti-Soviet, but primarily they were not just anti-left and anti-liberal, but you know they viewed the the kind of moderate Republican conservative even establishment in many cases, Dwight Eisenhower most infamously, as as big a threat, if not a bigger one. Than people like John Kennedy, um, you know, Welch famously uh, called Eisenhower a dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. And so the thing about the Birch Society is that, yeah, as much as they hated the Soviet Union uh, and Khrushchev, they saw the greatest threat to the United States as coming from within, coming from elites in media, in politics, the establishment and really the march of, of the New Deal and the expansion of the welfare state and U.S. intervention overseas, the so U.S. kind of internet, liberal internationalism. Those were the, the greatest threats in the eyes of the Birchers. Um, how do we go from there to the, you know, kind of a pro-Putin uh, pro -Putin apologists in the Republican Party? Well, first of all, obviously not all Republicans today are, are pro-Putin. I mean, this is not to take anything away from your point, which is, I, I think, absolutely correct. But there are clearly some who, when when DeSantis, the governor of Florida, came out and said, you know, it's a territorial dispute in Ukraine. You know, there are a lot of Republicans uh, even today who push back on that uh, vociferously. Um, having said that, yes, I mean, Trump took Putin's word over uh, his own, you know, CIA's. And um, and, you know, Tucker Carlson goes on TV and says, you know, what's what's wrong like with Putin or you know I don't care that much about Putin um I think that again you know the the connection or one through line is that the current kind of Putin apologists they view the greatest threat to the United States not as Putin but as the liberals and the left right it's 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 the internal threat from you know what Trump would refer to as the radical left and uh and and so that to them is a much greater threat. That's a threat they want to focus on. And as far as Putin goes, you know, they're 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 fairly isolationist, right? They don't want to intervene uh, overseas in Ukraine or or really anywhere else for that matter. Um, you know, as the Bircher said, uh, they want to get the U.S. out of the United Nations to some extent. And and that sentiment, I think, has uh, taken over a a chunk of the Republican Party, not all of it. And it's one reason why you see people like Tucker Carlson basically not really caring about Putin, not seeing him as as much of a threat, and uh, and focusing on you know this alleged deep state conspiracy.
Well, that's, I think, where there is a real kind of comparison and a commingling of the John Birch belief system and the current radical right of the Republican Party, including fringe groups like QAnon that, are, that in many ways Trump has brought into the mainstream. And the fact that only 37% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden is the legitimate president and the presidency was stolen from Trump. And then when you mentioned Tucker Carlson, he recently said, January the 6th, I think, is probably second only to the 2020 election as the biggest scam in my lifetime. So is that a stronger connection in the sense, remember the John Birch Society were against fluoride, and now you have their heirs in the Republican Party today being against COVID vaccination. I think the, the one of the strongest and, and one of the most obvious connections is in the conspiracy theory, right? The um, And really the pliability of those theories, the um, ability of the far right, obviously there are theories on the left too, but, but in this case, the far right, the ability of the far right, especially after the Cold War or even during detente in the 1970s, um, to adapt conspiracy theories to the moment, to the issue. So instead of a, a, a communist conspiracy, once communism goes away, uh, it becomes a trilateral commission, uh, uh, the, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, these international groups, international bankers, George Soros, for example, in current parlance, who are manipulating the levers of power and, and really sapping the, the, the sovereignty of the United States. And, and I think that is the kind of um, conspiracy theories. And again, you know, there are many tentacles you know, of these theories. Uh, QAnon obviously has its own thing, um, but, and they're very hard to kind of unpack and, and track down uh, or even follow because they're illogical. But, but I do think that, that that is one connection, ideological connection that the Birch Society did help to uh, bequeath uh, as a tradition to to some of its successors, but there are other traditions as well. I think a, a kind of more violent uh, political rhetoric, a, a more dehumanizing uh, rhetoric against its opponents. The sense again that that the internal enemies, which is part conspiracy but part also kind of anti-establishment, um, it's the establishment in both parties, right, that is really to blame for America's problems. And then there's a, a kind of anti-interventionist or isolationist stance as well that that I, I think um, the society also handed off to, you know, people like uh, Ron Paul, for example, or Pat Buchanan, and who are inspired by them, inspired by Birch books and Birch ideas. But things clearly, though, have gotten more radical in the sense of political violence is on the rise. And, uh, you know, you had the husband of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, being attacked by a guy who listens to right-wing radio and believes that crazy stuff that Alex Jones and others put out regularly. And then even the other day on the weekend, in response to Trump saying that he expected to be arrested yesterday, Tuesday, he said to his followers, protest, protest, protest. And we certainly have seen enough of that with January the 6th. So yeah. do you see a difference now in terms of the paranoia lately morphing into violence? Yeah, I think it's um, the, the 
the violent rhetoric, the conspiracy theories that have led to, to real world violence, as we've seen, whether it's January 6th, the, the shootings uh, targeting the Democrats in New Mexico, uh, the, uh, the horrific attack on Paul Pelosi, um, and, and many other actually uh, uh, attacks that um, mass murders that have been in part, at least inspired by this uh, so-called uh, white replacement theory that circulates on the far right. I think the point is that it is these theories, these ideas and the violent rhetoric has become more mainstream. And as a result, the Department of Homeland Security has identified uh, really uh, far right extremism as the greatest threat, internal threat to the United States. Um, and of course, you know, January 6th is the most vivid and awful example of that, but uh, there has been a real uptick in uh, not just talk about violence, but actual acts of violence. And, um, you know, we know we know where that has ended up. And sadly, um, it seems uh, uh, unlikely to 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 fade away anytime soon. I mean, this is sort of the the world we're living in with the far right and all of the kind of violent rhetoric, oratory and an actual violence that's been committed. Uh, and, and, you know, again, you use the example of Trump urging his people to protest his arrest. Well, you know, we saw what uh, what happened when he said, you know, come to the Capitol January 6th, be there, we'll be wild, right? We saw where that ended up. So, you know, this is this is dangerous stuff. Well, just in the last minute, Matthew, Trump is holding a rally on Saturday in Waco, Texas, on the 30th anniversary of the siege of the Branch Davidian compound, which has become a part of the radical rights mythology. And, of course, David Koresh was absolutely tortured by the most ludicrous conspiracy theory. So this is a huge vote on Trump's part for conspiracy theories and lunacy. And yeah, well, listen, yeah, well, listen, Trump, I think, has become more radical, uh, uh, if that's possible. But he I mean, look at his dinner with the anti-Semitic rapper uh, Yee, uh, formerly known as Kanye West, and the white supremacist leader, one of the most visible leaders of white supremacy in the country, Nick Fuentes. You know, he had a dinner with them at his home in Mar-a-Lago. Thanksgiving um, dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think he's in some ways become even more radicalized um, since January 6th and more willing to align himself with even fringier people. Uh, and, and, you know, this rally in Waco, I don't know what else to conclude other than, you know, it's a statement about this deep state, right? And the ATF and FBI, and, you know, that's all out to get him and they were out to get the Branch Davidians. And, um, and you know, this is, I think, increasingly uh, scary stuff. And, you know, maybe the only thing that, well, a couple of things that could stop it. One is, you know, if Trump and Trump supporters lose enough elections, you know, if, if it becomes, you have more 2022 outcomes, um, that that can push back. And then also we've seen the Department of Justice and law enforcement obviously uh, try, convict and jail uh, hundreds, well, hundreds really of, um, of some of these violent protesters from January, or not protesters, violent uh, insurrectionists from January 6th. And I think that has had some 
uh, uh, effect as well. Well, Matthew Dalek, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Dalek, who's an historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. He's the author of The Right Moment and Defenseless Under the Night. And his latest book, Just Out, is Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past